Go ahead and pick your speed up your number one now, runway 27, clear to land green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello, and welcome back for another episode of the EAA's Green Dot, the podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. I'm one of your hosts. I'm Chris Henry, the EAA Aviation Museum Programs Representative. Uh, With me across the table is my cohort. I am Sam Olson. I am EAA's Assistant Editor. Well, Sam, and this is your first Green Dot uh, you're stepping in on. It it is. uh, Long-time listener, first-time host. (laughs) Well, fantastic. So this is training day, huh? It is training day. Yeah, it's a training flight here today. Good thing there's some experienced professionals. (laughs) (laughs) And that voice you're hearing is our guest today, who's actually here to speak at the Museum Speaker Series. Uh, And uh, anybody who follows the... Uh, the history of uh, naval aircraft that are being restored. And, and if you visit naval or different aviation museums, you've seen a lot of his work there. Uh, with us is Terrace Lysenko. Terrace, thank you so much for being here and, and coming to speak at the museum tonight. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, one of the questions I always like to ask people, because you always get a really kind of cool answer to it, um, is what first got you interested in, in airplanes? Um. People ask me that question all the time, and what my real interest in life is exploration. I'm just a natural marine explorer, and since aircraft, there's a lot more aircraft underwater than there are submarines in the sky, aircraft are a cool thing for me to look for and explore for. And the stories are, I don't know if the word great is what I should use, the stories are very interesting. When you look at aircraft crashed in the water, it's, they're very interesting stories. There's something happened, something traumatic happened there. So I, I like that. I like that, I like that, whole, that whole dynamic. Right. So, I mean, I, I guess the question is, is how did you get involved? By my understanding, you, you grew up in the Chicago area along, you know, near Lake Michigan. Um, how did you get involved in exploring underwater, and, and why was that, you know, why was that something you decided to do? Well, a very fortunate thing happened, and it's just one of these chance things. I grew up on a street in a neighborhood, Chicago area neighborhood, with other youth boys who sort of thought the way I did. They were always turning over rocks and always looking for things to explore. And independently, we all became scuba divers, and we all, we all grew up together, but we really didn't talk to each other too much until I got into mid-teen years, and we started saying, oh, hey, you, went and took, you became a scuba diver, you became a scuba diver. And we, uh, we all kind of joined up, and we got this boat that there's not enough rolls of duct tape in the world for it to hold together. <laughs> and we took it out in Lake Michigan. I don't know why we're not dead. We should all got killed. Anyway, we took it out in Lake Michigan, the group of us. There was about 10 of us at, at first, right? And um, before, when I was about 17 years old, what happened was a scuba club located one of the lost aircraft in Lake Michigan. Prior to that, we were looking for shipwrecks because we didn't know about the aircraft. We were young kids who didn't know about the aircraft, and the scuba club found. And, and the way we found out is I went to get our scuba tanks filled, and the scuba diving shop said, you'll have to wait till we fill the scuba tanks for the guys working on the aircraft. So we said, what aircraft? So we learned right then and there what it was that was all about. Well, of course, that's a cooler thing to find than shipwrecks that were 
anyway, so we started looking. By the time I was 17, we had already started locating aircraft. And then we all went off to college and military stuff. And, and most of those guys matured and moved on. So it left me, my partner, my younger brother, and uh, yeah, and we had to uh, we had to find some other people. So we uh, it's actually a hobby. <laughs> okay, <laughs> okay. So for, I guess for a lot of folks that are first learning about this, um, can, can we talk about how did these airplanes end up in Lake Michigan? And it's funny because you and I just came off of the the museum floor talking to some people about this. Yeah. So. What happened was Pearl Harbor occurred, right, um, December 7th, 1941. And the Navy wasn't prepared, right, because if you knew the politics of the time period, people were running for president saying they're going to keep us out of those that foreign wars. We, we had been in World War One, and, and the American public did not want to be in those wars. So they, they were presenting an image and trying not to get us into the war, so we really weren't prepared to go to war. Somebody came up with an idea and said, we need to, well, they realized they needed to qualify lots of pilots for the war in the Pacific because, well, look, the Japanese attacked us with aircraft carriers and they demonstrated how effective the aircraft was at war. Prior to that, they all thought the dreadnought or battleships were just going to get on the sea and shoot huge shells at each other until they blew each other to smithereens. But the de- Japanese demonstrated, nah, the, air- the aircraft is what's going to win this war. So we were behind the power curve. But somebody came up with a brilliant idea and said, wait a minute, if we try to train these people off our coasts, there's this thing called, on the East Coast, there's this thing called the Wolf Pack, which is U-boats. And then the Japanese, believe it or not, had really good submarines, better, better submarines. And so they said, we can't, how, how are you going to learn to land on an aircraft carrier if the aircraft carrier is dodging torpedoes? You just, it's hard enough to do it in the first place, let alone learn to do it. So they came up with an interesting idea that to, let's do it in Lake Michigan off Chicago, which had Glenview Naval Air Station to the north where pilots could initially fly out of. And we have Navy Pier where we can dock the ships. So they purchased two side-wheeled steam-powered excursion boats. It's kind of interesting before the war, people would take cruises on the Great Lakes on these fancy pleasure boats like we do in the Caribbean nowadays. So they bought two of these ships, the uh, Greater Buffalo and the CNB. They took the superstructures off and they put wooden flat tops on them. And then from autumn of 1942 through the end of the war, they qualified approximately 15,000 pilots along with deck crews and um, people that worked radar and all kinds of other stuff. It was a whole training operation. On Navy Pier, they had a... Um, uh, mechanic school. So people think that uh, the aircraft in Lake Michigan, some of them were pushed off the deck. Not true. If an aircraft was damaged on one of these carriers, they put them on what's called the outrigger, and then they brought them in, and they put them on Navy Pier where they put them back into operation. So they needed all the, They needed all that. We were behind. <laughs> we were behind in production. We were behind in pilots. We were behind in everything. But it was so successful, obviously, we know the results of the war. Right. Now, you know, when you were 17 years old, 17 is when you said you pulled your first aircraft? No, no, we found our first. You found your first aircraft. So how old were you when you pulled your first aircraft? Uh, I think I was 26. 26. So yeah. about 10 years later or so. Yeah, I had to go to college and military stuff. And, yeah. And the other guys had to do similar stuff. <laughs> so 
what was it? I mean, I guess what was it like? You know that you know you you see the aircraft coming out of the lake. This is the first one you've you've ever recovered. What 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 was that feeling like? I I gotta tell you, it's gonna surprise you what I'm gonna say. There's a problem in Chicago, which is, you ever go down the highway and there's an accident and all of a sudden all the traffic stops because what are people doing? Gaping, yeah. right? Right. Well, Chicago's got thousands and thousands of pleasure boats. So picture this. We bring an aircraft in. If we bring it in at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, there's no way we can get through all the gapers because everybody is crazy. If you think people are crazy driving, you should see how they are with boats. And, and everybody wants to. So what we decided to do was do it in the middle of the night. So the first airplane we recovered was at about 1 o'clock in the morning, and every single one of us had one thing in mind. Let's get this done so we can go to sleep. <laughs> so <laughs> and that's the honest truth. <laughs> so what was the first aircraft you, you recovered? Uh, while while uh, I, I'm getting old okay. in my memory, but um, the uh, – Wildcat fighter for the Cradle of Aviation Museum on Long Island, New York. Okay. And that thing looked like it had been through a thermal nuclear blast because it was very shallow and it was broken up and we had lots of pieces. But they put it back together and it's on display. It's been on display at the Cradle of Aviation Museum ever since. Very cool. So it's kind of cool. Awesome. What's that like for you when you, I mean, because how many aircraft have you recovered now? About 40. We never tell the exact number. We, d we never tell which ones. We never tell the exact number. Because there's people that think they're going to compete with us. And if they want to go looking for an aircraft that we already recovered, good. Go look for it. <laughs> <laughs> I spend more time. You just need to look harder and longer. <laughs> <laughs> well, and how does it feel, you know, when you when you walk into a museum and there's this, the, just like the Wildcat that's out in the Eagle Hangar right now, and there's this airplane you recovered bit that's fully restored, and, and how does that? It's got to do something to you. It, it does, actually, it does. So, and this may sound kind of bad. Most people in life are spectators that exist. There's a small percentage who really live and are the people who do things. Most people spend their life; they go to work for 40, 40 years out of their life, and then they retire and sit by a pool in Florida and tell stories of whatever. And it ends up, what's left of them is a tombstone. If you look at it from that perspective, just imagine all the tombstones I have all over the country. This is kind of cool, right? Yeah, absolutely. And those tombstones will be here as long as there's the United States of America. So people, as long as there's this country, will know what we did. Even though it's a bunch of immature kids clowning around. Because that's really what we are. I'm really like 17. <laughs> Can you tell? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. I, I never grew up. <laughs> I just didn't grow up. But I know when I die, forever, people will know what I did. Sure. And that's kind of cool. Absolutely, a real legacy. Yeah. Absolutely. It's just, And you can't take that away from me. Nobody can t ever take that away. Right. So... So no matter how bad they say I am, <laughs> <laughs> and they say I'm pretty bad. It's just their perspective. <laughs> so, so when it comes to the process, you know, uh, between you know finding the the aircraft at the bottom of the lake, and you know, 
somehow dragging it up. I mean, I, I'm no expert when it comes to stuff like that. Can you just kind of explain that process from locating it to actually pulling it out of the water? Have a week. <laughs> <laughs> How about the cliff notes? Okay. The, so the, a lot of people believe that the U.S. Navy gave us positions, and we've, that's not the case. All of the locating of the aircraft, that's just my partner and I, Alan Olson's. That's all our doing. We just did that on our own. Once we located them, and the director of the, and deputy director of the National Naval Aviation Museum said, I'd like that aircraft, we go through this whole process. For one, there has to ra we have to raise money. And then we have to get all the other government agency approvals. And one of the agencies is the Navy History and Heritage Command. And I don't think I want to ruin the pleasure of this conversation by telling you how bad they are, but I think it suffices how bad they are. Because they have people in there that are called archaeologists, and archaeologists believe the rest of the people in the country have no business touching, seeing these things, that only they should, they're, they're the elitists, the special people, the anointed ones that should be able to do this. Anyway, aside from that, then we have to go get permission from the Army Corps of Engineers, and the Army Corps of Engineers has to engage, I thought it was like 32 different entities, agencies, so there's Fish and Wildlife, there's EPA, there's all, the, and if people don't understand how encroaching government is, it's amazing these agencies will all have these overlapping responsibilities, right? So like the EPA, if we satisfy the EPA, well, why do we need to satisfy somebody else who says they have a environmental protection thing? We have to do this thing called an uh, National Environmental Policy Act study, which was intended for if, like, the Navy wants to build a runway out off of some city out into the ocean and cuts off ocean currents with that runway, they have to study why they're not harming the ecosystem. Every day during the summer, off of Chicago or in the Chicago harbors, boats sink in the harbor or sink out in the lake, and they're recovered. Nobody has to do an Environmental Policy Act study. And we're picking up something that's about the size of a boat. We're not disturbing the environment, right? But they make us do this, and it costs an awful lot of money. They, we even have to consult with the Native American tribes to see what their opinion is on the subject matter, which they've been actually wonderful. They say, what do we have to do with that? <laughs> they've been very honest, right? Then we have to go through this thing called the National Historic Preservation Trust, which is a group of people that I have no idea what they're talking about, what they, whatever. And they say, well, we will only say yes if we agree to these certain things. And there's the historic preservation agencies from the states, different states. They, they just make work. They just try to appear like they're doing something. Anyway, so once we get everybody to say yes or no comment, um, which takes a long time, then Naval History and Heritage Command has to give their decision. Who those people just a few years ago learned what radium was. They had no idea what radium, and so all the pilots that know what radium, anyway, and 
it's a nightmare. So it takes a long time. We, the last aircraft we recovered, we located in the 90s. So we're talking 15, 20 years later, we get to recover them. So it's, it's a nightmare. So once you get all the, the approvals from the different agencies or the no comments, uh, whatever they may be, you find the location and what, what do you do from there? Oh, once all the approvals are in, yeah, and we have the funding. Yes. Oh, we also have to have, we also have to have the receiver museum and the funding for restoration and all that stuff. To, we have to yeah. have, all, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a nightmare. Um, well, then, what do we do to recover it? Yeah. Oh, um, we attach our heave compensation lifting system, pick it up, tow it into the harbor, pull it out with a crane, and. Disassemble it and send it away. <laughs> Pretty succinct. That is the Cliff Notes version. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the hard part is on the front end of all the work. It's the, it's yeah. the paperwork. The, the recovery is, to us, it's, wow, we can recover now. Oh, well, that'll be easy. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you, um, you know, how do you find and track the aircraft? Like, how do you first find out that this aircraft is down there? Like, uh, So the, the, the. The ships had very good log records. Very interesting log records. If somebody was fined five or ten dollars, it's in the log records. Wow. Um, they they tell you what food was brought on board, all that kind of stuff. Um, so remember, I said it was training for deck crews and radar people. And that one of the things they had, and I had a, this crazy guy telling me how the captain got up when a plane crashed, got up on the deck of the ship and looked and and looked where he was, but I said, no, no, they had radar. And he just refused to believe me. Radar wasn't invented. Okay. okay, don't believe me. Anyway, they had radar, and they were training radar crews. And so when an aircraft would crash, um, have any of you guys been in the military? Okay. In the military, there's a phrase, a set of phrases that's used. Explanation, demonstration, practical application. So they're training them on radar, so they've explained, they've demonstrated the radar, doing the radar thing. A plane would crash, that would be a practical application. So they would tell them to get radar fixes, a position based on radar fixes. So um, so the radar's making this sweep. You guys seen radar, right? Go around, making a sweep. So it goes around and it hits St. Joseph Harbor, Michigan's harbor entrance. So they get the distance and the azimuth to that. Hits uh, um, Michigan City Harbor entrance, they get that hits Chicago, they get that, Waukegan Harbor, they get that, and they record all those, right? So what do you think you get when you draw those all out on a map? Normally they would get three. It was interesting. They always seem to get three. So what do you think you get when you draw those out? A point, right? No, a triangle. Yeah, it's sweeping. It's going around. So this one is the, the ship's moving. The ship doesn't stop when aircraft crash because they had crash boats. So the ship doesn't stop. So, okay, so you think the aircraft is going to be in a triangle, right? Never. All the tides and all that kind of stuff? No, no. So what people said, said this is weird, because people don't, they think like they want to think. Remember earlier we were talking about what people think? They think what they want to believe. So, so you get a triangle, but the aircraft are never in that triangle. They're not in that triangle. And people say, Oh, because that's because the aircraft flew. Really? You, what's, what's the forces in aircraft, right? You need thrust, drag, lift, and gravity, right? Well, the aircraft has crashed into water. Where's the thrust? It may 
sort of glide a little bit? Yeah, three degrees better than a rock. And then they would say, oh, well, you know, over the years, the storms moved them around. No, they didn't. You're going to move an 8,000-pound object because, wow, the current on the bottom went up to one, one mile an hour or one knot? No, it didn't move. So you got to think like a 19-year-old being on the deck of a ship and something bad happens. Remember I said earlier about the car crash and gapers? Mm-hmm. Do you think a 19-year-old on the deck of that ship is not a gaper? You better believe he jumped out on the deck of that ship and went, awesome. Oh, my God. The pilot. Oh, he just jumped out. Of the, he just got out. Oh, there's ice there. He might die. Oh, my God. So then you got an instructor who says, okay, we got to do a practical application. That boat is moving at 15 miles an hour. By the time they got the radar fixes, the, the boat went who knows how many miles away. That's why they're never at the X. Okay. So then the question is, how come we could find them and other people couldn't? Because we know what direction the ship was moving, always. Was that part of the logs that you you have? Yep. But people don't know how to read the logs to find out the direction of the ship. Okay. You have to be able to think like you were on that ship. That's our military background helped us with that. Oh, okay. Talking to naval aviators helped us with that. Helped us understand what was being thought on that ship and what was happening on that ship. At any given moment. Okay. So we know where the we know where to look. We knew where to look right from the beginning. So when you when you find it and you get it uh, attached and pulled up, do you use a do you use a hook? Do you use a magnet? How do you get that? Uh... Oh, um, all the aircraft are designed to be lifted. Okay. Right, because they had a they didn't they might have the aircraft carrier might be in harbor and they need to put aircraft on it. Right, so they've got to pick them up with a crane and put them on. So they're all designed to be lifted. Okay. So we we. Early on, we went to Smithsonian Air and Space, and we have a great relationship with the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum. And so we've got the funny part is this is the funny part of it. We have what's called the maintenance and erection manuals. Right now, these things were written to keep secrets, so that if if the Japanese or the Germans got hold of one of these things, they couldn't figure out. They couldn't figure out really what was being said. So, so uh, we were talking earlier about the Vindicator. Oh, that thing drove us nuts because the maintenance and erection manual says, attach the lifting assembly to the lifting points and pick it up. Doesn't show you what the, doesn't show you what the lifting assembly is. Doesn't show you what size fittings. It doesn't show you any. So we locate an aircraft at 160 feet deep underwater, and we're trying to figure out where where on earth are the is the lifting assembly, what it looks like, and what. What are the fittings? So, I don't know if you know anything about nitrogen narcosis. In those days, we used to dive at those depths, and we'd go down there looking at the thing going, okay, I can't figure out where <laughs> what to attach this thing to. Of course, you're, you're, it's like you just took a whole bunch of Xanax, and you're, you're, you're <laughs> zoned out, and you're like, okay, here I am going. I, I'm, on, I, I'm basically drugged because of the <laughs> nitrogen, and I'm trying to figure out something engineering-wise. Nah, this isn't going to happen. Right, so... Um, so anyway, so it's kind of it's we like the challenge of it all though. Right? We figured it out. We did figure it out, and uh, very interesting lift, lifting assembly on that aircraft. Right. So, um, so that's how we attach that. We we quit diving so deep years ago. We use remote operated vehicles. Um, I I'm, the joke was I had ninety nine lives and I've used ninety five of them. <laughs> so um, the remote operated vehicles keep me from le- using the last four. 
Okay. <laughs> you know, so, yeah. <laughs> what were some of the, I guess, more challenging recoveries you've done, and what was challenging about them? Um, that F4U-1 Corsair was standing on its nose like this. Oh, gosh. This Wildcat fighter you have here was standing on its nose like this. Uh, I, for those on the radio, let me describe it. It's standing on its nose where it's almost straight up and down. <laughs> okay. How do you attach to the lifting points when it's straight up and down with a remote-operated vehicle? It's hard. So on the Wildcat fighter, it was 210 feet deep. I finally gave up and said, I'm diving to that depth which was really a dumb thing to do. That took, I think, four of my lives. <laughs> and the, uh, <laughs> but we attached it. So I know because I did it. <laughs> and the attachment points, those are towards the nose? I well, think. on that Wildcat fighter, we, we just said, my partner said, well, the, the, the remote-operated vehicle is unable to open up the, there's a little door up in front of the uh, uh, windshield, windscreen. And it has four Zeus fasteners, the door does. You can open it up, and there's a lifting assembly there. Kind of easy, actually, if you can open that up, right? Um, well, we just couldn't open that up. We tried, tried, tried. My partner says, well, why don't we just attach to the tail tie-down? So I went down and put a hook on the tail tie-down, <laughs> and we picked it up, which meant we picked it up straight up and down. So put that in perspective. So we have a diver, Keith, and I call him Beaker sometimes, and, and I don't think— Christina would know what, um, but from the Muppets, you guys probably would know from the Muppets. You guys remember the Muppets? Oh, yeah, show? yeah, we know Beaker. Yeah, Beaker was the assistant in the laboratory who the professor would go, Beaker, I want you to test this. And <laughs> Beaker, Beaker, it was always a bad idea for Beaker to test it. So we have a diver, Keith, every now and then I call him Beaker. So there's the airplane hanging straight up and down, and I go, hey, Keith, Beaker, what I want you to do is go down along the side of <laughs> Anyway, you get the idea. He did it. He did. He's like, well, you put the tail hook. You attach to the, to the tail tie down. Okay, I, it's my turn. Okay, I'll do it. You know? <laughs> so that wildcat recovery, I heard from Chris uh, that you had the uh, the pilot that that ended up crashing in Lake Michigan on on board that day when you recovered it. No, 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 no. Okay. No, that, that I, I I took one of the pilots. Oh, I, only once that I can remember. I might be senile. I I only remember uh, taking one pilot out to his aircraft. Okay. And that was great fun, taking him out there. He told me I get sick on any ship uh, shorter than 500 feet, and I thought he was kidding. <laughs> no, he was serious. But he toughed it out. Um, we took him. He was the pilot. He crashed uh, December 17th, 1943. How do you like that? Wow. Great story. Great story. He had an engine failure in a TBF, 0606. Oh, see, I'm forgetting it. It's 0606 something. I forgot. Anyway, but he, he had an... Um, this story's great. This story, this is unbelievable story. This is the story I think Chris was telling me about. Okay. <laughs> All right. So we took him out to it. We showed it to him because he. I, I met him. He was being inducted to the Illinois Aviation Hall of Fame, and that's where I met him. And so I was there with the youngest aviator in naval aviation history. I was there with him and his family, and then so I got to meet the other one. His name was... Uh, Grant Young. He became ended up becoming a captain. Uh, so anyway, he December 17, 1943, 06064, I think. Anyway, he had an engine out about 8, eight to 10 miles out in Lake Michigan, ice on the water, and the crash boat pulled up to him. And I don't know if you know much about boating, but if you pull back your throttles on a lot of boat engines too, too hard, too quick, you'll kill the engines. Well, sure enough, they killed all their engines. So the guy in the back deck tells him, and, and he's standing... He's standing on the wing because you know how an aircraft, when it goes down, the, the engine pulls it, 
pulls it, nose, his nose over, and then pulls it down. And so he's standing on the wing. He doesn't even have his feet wet yet. And, and the guy in the back deck says, oh, he, the, the, you know, the operator, the driver of the boat killed the engines. You'll have to swim to us. And he's like, no, no. <laughs> there's ice here, dude. You know, I don't think they used the word dude in those days. But anyway. <laughs> anyway, so, so he had no choice. So he, he swims, but by the time he got to the boat, he was exhausted. So he grabbed hold of the ladder and he's hanging on. He couldn't get up. So they guy comes out from inside and lassoed him, and they they the deck crew pulls him, just drags him up like a fish. He described it that way, just like a fish. They flopped him on the back deck, and there was a physician apparently on the boat. They brought him in. The, the, he said they gave him some sort of something to drink and an injection, and he went to sleep. So he he wakes up when they smash the boat into Navy Pier to get him off, and. And they put him in a Stokes litter. You know what Stokes litter is? Okay. It's kind of, it looks like a cage, right? It kind of forms around your body a cage. Put him in a Stokes litter because they can strap you in that. So he was strapped in that, put him in it, and he says, good thing the guy with the ropes was thinking again. The guy tied the Stokes litter and tied it to the boat because the crew dropped him back in the water. Oh, my gosh. He said, that's it. (laughs) (laughs) Enough of you guys. You're going to kill me. You're having a bad day, but I don't want it to end up. Uh, you know, killing me. So anyway, so so what happened, this is crazy. He was scheduled to join a squadron that was doing submarine patrols off of Seattle. And this all delayed him. So he was supposed to get married like 10 days later. He ended up with chicken pox. Everything delayed him. <laughs> he ends up becoming what's called a pool pilot, which is kind of a replacement pilot. So for, I think it was, might have been... It might have been a Torpedo 6, VT-6. I don't know. So guess what? He he ends up being the pilot who puts the torpedo into the Amato battleship and blowing it to smithereens. Oh, wow. Hey, so now that the story even gets better. So they made these 78 records to give to the radio shows where he was being interviewed about it. It's kind of funny because his name is Grant. Grant. See Young. So the first part of the radio interview, the, the interviewer says, okay, so, uh, you know, I think he was still an Ensign at that point, you know, Ensign Young, Grant Young. They call you Grant, do you, do they? And he says, no, they call me Jack. And so there's a whole thing to the story about Jack. They call him Jack. Anyway, so obviously the reporter's like, huh? They call you Jack? He's like, yeah, they call me Jack. <laughs> it's like, your middle name? No, they call me Jack. <laughs> so anyway, so so we were doing a, uh, we did a documentary on him, a little document, kind of our own little, AT Recovery does like a weird things off to the side. We just like to. So we did this documentary with the support of uh, um, the Chicago Underwater Archaeological Society, which are volunteer archaeologists and, and anyway, real archaeologists say there's no such thing as volunteer archaeologists. Anyway, but so we don't <laughs> care. Anyway, so we do, we're doing this little, we're doing this documentary with him. And his wife says to me, because I'm the producer from A&T Recovery, basically, which I don't really know what a producer does. Anyway, other than find money or something, I don't know. Anyway, so I really don't know. I have no idea. Nobody ever explained to me what a producer does, but they said I'm the producer. Okay, cool. Anyway, <laughs> I'll take the title. I don't know what to do with it. Um, so they, the wife says, I got to talk to you. And she whispers, I, I got to talk to you. And I said, about what? She says, I don't want anybody to hear. It's a secret. I can't tell you. I can go to prison if I tell you. And I said, try me. We'll see if you go to prison, right? So we go out in the other room, and I said, what is it? And she says, do you know what I did during the war? And I said, well, your husband tells me you were housewife. You had, how, 
whatever your number your children were born during that time period. Just that's what he thinks. So I'm thinking, okay, this is going to be bad. And like, okay, no, maybe you shouldn't tell me. And she's like, I got to tell somebody. I haven't told anybody in all this time because they told me I'll go to prison. So I'm thinking, okay, the things I'm thinking that would be bad, like for a husband to hear, you don't go to prison for. So I said, all right, tell me. She says, I was one of General Groves' encoders. General Groves led the Manhattan Project. Wow. Yeah. I said, you're not going to prison. <laughs> I said, it's about time you tell somebody. So he walked back out. And I told her husband, he went, what? No way. Sure enough, she was one of General Groves encoders. Wow. And when he would come home on leave, she had to behave like she was sitting at home being a housewife. And she had, she told me, she said, I wasn't allowed to walk to work. I, I wasn't allowed to walk home from work. I wasn't allowed to go anywhere without this driver. I said, that wasn't a driver. She said, what was he? And I said, he was there to shoot you if you said the wrong thing. And she said, really? And I said, yeah. Was he a nice guy? She said, no, he <laughs> and uh, yeah, she said, they were always there. Wow. Yeah. And she started telling me about Oppenheimer and started telling me all this cool stuff. And that was going to be my next question is, did she know what, did she know everything? Not oh, everything, she, but. She told me, she said, nuclear? Fission, thermal nuclear, no idea what they were talking about. <laughs> she said, she said, but I heard all the jokes what like what Grove would say about Oppenheimer and what you know, what we all said about Oppenheimer and what we all said about this other person and and she said, yeah, I had no idea what they were talking about, but I was doing the coding and coding for it. Wow, she was one of them. There was a lot of them, but she was one of them. So she knew General Grove, she knew Oppenheimer, she knew them all, and he had no idea. Wow. She never told anybody till that day. Isn't that cool? That's, That's very amazing. cool. Amazing. Yeah. Well, I think the story that that uh, Sam was, was talking about, I think this associated with our aircraft has to do with when it was recovered, the veteran who did fly it got to come out and it had something to do with the throttle setting on the aircraft. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's the big thing. Right, so... Um, and I think both, both of the Wildcats that we recovered at the same time period, because we recovered two... Um, one two two six zero, and that 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 we sold to Dave Kensler. Uh, Mark Clark sold it to Dave Kensler, and then this one I think is one two two nine six, right? And so Dick Hansen and Jim Porter bought that one. Um, they both of them were the same thing. They thought they thought on takeoff uh, the throttles had crept back. They thought the throttles had crept back, and so we don't touch anything. We don't touch anything in the cockpit. We we just don't. Other than we do look in the what I call the glove box for personal things. I have my Boy Scout knife um, and we have a few other things because that's the personal stuff. And so we we always go in there because cool stuff. Uh, we used to find a lot of morphine in aircraft, um, morphine threats, which I'll have tonight. I'll have a morphine threat with me. Um, most people have never seen a morphine threat. It's kind of interesting. Um, it's a very important thing. Many a pilot survived because of those morphine threats. Anyway, so I have my Boy Scout knife. Anyway, so that's the only thing we look in. We look in the, the, the personal glove box um, for that kind of stuff. And then we ask the pilots if we can find the pilot. Well, now we can't anymore. They're all gone. But when we could, we would get hold of them and we'd say, hey, I found this. Can I keep it? You know, so like the Boy Scout knife, the, the pilot said I could have it. Um, my partner has a really nice canteen. That was cool. I can't. Mm. I don't. Know, I. I just kind of like it. It was perfect. Not. Not a single bit of corrosion on it. It's beautiful. Um, 
anyway, but yeah, that's the thing. So, so there's our videos while it's underwater showing the throttle quadrant. And both those aircraft, everything, um, no, I, I got to step back because it's my recollection that both were full forward. This one for sure. Both, everything was full forward. It, it didn't cre creep back. So the accident report was claiming that it was the pilot's fault because he let the throttle creep back, lost power. And that was the vindication after 50 or so years for the pilots to say, no, I didn't. They were wrong. They blamed it on me and it was the engine quit. And, and that would happen. That happened to Grant Young. Um, it, those things were being used right one, one after the other, and maintenance was a nightmare. Right. So you can't, you can't, there's nobody at fault for that. It was just, we had a war, and we're, they were putting out so many pilots, and everybody was, I'm sure, stressed at that time period. So it happened. Stuff happened. Right. So what those pilots were, took them 50 years to be vindicated, but, hey, I'm glad we did that, too. It's that's, a minor little thing. That's awesome. So, yeah, not to them it is. It's a big thing to, to them. To them it was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know. You know. So you were mentioning that, that uh, the underwater vehicles do have cameras on them that you can kind of- Cameras and claws. and We can cut a cable with one of our claws. It's kind of cool. Wow. Like, things powerful. Like, keep your fingers away from that thing. <laughs> wow. Because anyway, your fingers are nothing compared to a cable. So who uh, else is part of the, the, the team, the crew that, that goes out there? How big is your crew? How big is tiny. your Tiny. Okay. So, um, well, there's the, the, the main three now are myself, Alan Olson, Keith Pearson. Okay. Um, and then there's Bruce, Paul, Todd. And, and our crew keeps dying on us. I don't know. It's kind of sad. I keep dying. Um, everybody keeps dying on me. All these pilots keep dying. I, I, I anti-recovery sponsored the largest reunion of Battle of Midway pilots ever in history. And within six months, half of them had died. Wow. They're all, the last one died just a few years ago, Dusty Cleese. Um, I keep losing my friends. Yeah, that, that, that's the tough thing about it. I, I did a lot of work with the B-17 here. Yeah. And uh, the same thing, I mean, we... As a matter of fact, just today, one of the guys we flew on the 17, he was a top turret gunner. I just found a guy word from his daughter that he passed. He was yeah. under 101. And, yeah, and he was probably a youngster on that B-17, yeah. probably late, you know, late in the war, and he yeah. was probably a 17, 18-year-old kid. And so he would be a he would be a, been a youngster, and so he was 101. Yeah. Yeah. So I know like the the youngest pilot, uh, the youngest paratroopers from like uh, D-Day are 100 now. And, yeah, and there's yeah. hardly and I was just at a I was at a in April I was at a party for one um um uh, Pee Wee Martin mm. and he had just turned a hundred so they, they invited me. <laughs> That's that was, it was kind of funny because I was supposed to just be there hanging out just to talk to him and somebody recognized who I was and it's like oh geez no <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't supposed to be doing and I was supposed to just be hanging out talking with Pee Wee anyway so. Well, out of all the recoveries you've done, is there one that you're most proud of or is that is most special to you? No, they're all the same. They're all the same. They they inspire youth and it's all the same. I got to tell you I I I just ad admire the work that you do is oh, uh, saving the aircraft there are aircraft that you have brought up to the surface and that are in museums now that were extinct prior to that. Yeah, that's well the the, the National Naval Aviation Museum did not have a single combat veteran from world war ii until they ran into us wow yeah they're 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 dauntless is a 
Isn't it beautiful? I, oh my gosh. I mean, it's a battle. It's what, Coral Sea Midway? All right, so that is the most historic artifact in the U.S. Navy's collection. Outdoes wow. the outdoes the Arizona, outdoes the constant. It's the most historic, right? And then one another thing we take a lot of pride in. You can take all the aviation museums in the country, and all the mil- military museums in the country, and you can add them all up to the visitors, and you can't get to the number of people who get to see the aircraft we recovered out of Lake Michigan because of the SBD Dauntless in Midway Airport. Huh. Something upwards over 5 million people every year view that single artifact. Oh, wow. Think of that. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Who can say they, they achieve that? We can. That's awesome. Which is kind of cool. I guess I get to pat myself on the back, right? That's awesome. So, Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's a whole hell of a funny story, too, that I don't even put in my book about the Navy engineer talking about it, the, the risk... The risk analysis attorneys from the city of Chicago were concerned that the chain that we were going to hang it with might not be sturdy enough or strong enough, right? And the and Navy engineers said, if that airplane comes down, it's because your whole roof came down. <laughs> <laughs> I said, oh, no, this is going to be bad. Sure enough, it was like another $50,000 to have an architectural engineering firm do a new analysis on their roof structure. <laughs> I said, a quarter inch of snow on that roof is more than that SBD. What are you talking about? <laughs> you know, he's like, ah, oh. he's like, any excuse to come up with stuff. And it is a, there was the city of Chicago had, uh, her job was like artwork in the airports. So she was assigned to work with us. And she was stunned with the, the Navy lawyers to loan the aircraft to the city of Chicago. She had to prove that the city of Chicago existed. <laughs> Articles of incorporation, all kinds of weird. She said, oh my gosh. what are you talking about? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> See, there's a, there's a kind of online video where she talks about it. And she's like, we can laugh now, but you and I, we're not laughing. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I was kind of mean in some of those meetings, wasn't I? And she's like, yeah. <laughs> She's like, you would tell people to shut up. <laughs> you know, I, I used to, I would, I was way worse then than I am now. Okay, just a little bit worse. <laughs> anyway, but I would just, t- I'd look at somebody and go, you know what? Shut up. Get out of here. Shut up and get out of here because you're not helping me. You know, so it was, you know, it was that, those whole, the whole city of Chicago stuff is amazing. Wow. So. Well, and you're right. I mean, that aircraft gets seen by how many people? Millions, millions. Oh. That's yeah. awesome. And I don't know, I could, might have exaggerated that all the museums in the whole country don't get as much visitation as that one SBD, but I, I get to exaggerate a little bit. So, well, But, and, but and there isn't any artifact that gets that much, that much attention. Well, when you think about it, how many people, especially young kids, might look at that not realizing that the air, what the airport's named after yeah. or in honor of, and that might be their first dose of history that this battle even never happened. Hey, that's one of the reasons why I do it, and that's why I like EAA. You guys have, you know, every year except for, what, 2020, um, Air Ventures. And I tell people, I, people come and, well, like this last summer we brought an SBD, right? And, you know, and I, I like old people's stories, right? But I'd rather see that 10-year-old mesmerized. To me, that's worth it. Yeah. You know? If so, you get that kid interested, maybe he goes home, builds a model. 
You got him hooked. Absolutely. Maybe that's, you know, that kid has a chance at something that I'll never have a chance. I love to explore and what I could do, I would give anything to be able to go to space. And I'm not talking near space like like uh, William Shatner just did. I'm talking, I want to get past this solar system. I want to see what the Andromeda galaxy has because I think it's going to be really wild out there. And any 10-year-old has a chance to do something I never had. And hopefully what I do, it's inspires them to reach for that absolutely 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 and we just thank you for uh not just yourself but your entire team over at a for what you guys do bringing these aircraft back to life it's our pleasure we get to brag and and be arrogant <laughs> <laughs> well you've been wonderful here so far we're, we're glad to have you i'm still here. arrogant and cocky aren't i <laughs> <laughs> i don't think so no <laughs> well but no it's glad to have you here and, and for all those uh um who are listening to this at a later recorded date uh um, you know, know that every third Thursday of the month, we have a speaker series here in the museum where we get an interesting guest to come and chat with us for a bit to th- consider joining us uh, for one of those evenings. And just, uh, can I add something to that, Absolutely. please? Absolutely. Um, I give presentations all over the country. I always ask people, could you help with my expenses? Because it gets ex- real expensive for me to go to New York City and stay in a hotel and give a presentation. So I'm going to go bankrupt from doing that. But anyway, <laughs> the... Um, but I give presentations. Any group wants a presentation, the answer is always yes. Well, fantastic. So, Thank you, Terrace. Thank they can, you. They can reach me. You guys can put my phone number and my email address on any anywhere you want because it's on the Internet anyway. <laughs> so, uh, you know, just... Anyway, just put my name and they'll find it. Well, absolutely will do. And uh, thank you to all those who listen, who continue to listen to the Green Dot Podcast uh, and also provide us wonderful feedback. That helps allow us to do these podcasts. Thank you to my uh, cohort, Sam, for his first ever appearance on The Green Dot No problem, Chris. And as always, uh, the wonderful team, including Christina, who make this uh, podcast work. So on behalf of all of us here at EAA, we'll see you next time when you're cleared to land on The Green Dot. (laughs) 